everyone and welcome to Theonomony, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theonomony. This week I have a great episode in store for y'all. Uh, in a certain sense, it's kind of like a part two of last week since David from the Presup and Dominion Polemics gab page is on with me for both of them. And both episodes, we're looking at theonomy, you know, the thing that the title of this podcast is a play on words with. Last week, we looked at more of a bit of a history of theonomy, and this week, we are looking more at some objections to theonomy. I take the first one, and then after that, David takes three or four more. I don't know. He takes the rest of the episode to discuss other objections to theonomy. Some of the things that he thought through when he was becoming a theonomist before he decided to fully agree with it and how he found solutions and responses to all of those supposed uh, objections. But before we get started with the interview, I want to remind you all to whatever podcast catcher you're listening to me on, CastBox, which is my personal favorite, Spotify, Apple, Pocket Cast, whatever it may be, make sure to subscribe Turn on auto-download, turn on the notification bell, like or heart or whatever the podcast catcher you're using has for that feature. I already said subscribe, rate it, review it, do all those things, comment on it. Help me get the word out there so that we can try to get the message of theonomy out there to the world and that God has in his word laid out how we should view our economics and how we should put them into practice. So help me not get the word out there to make myself big. Help me get the word out there to make God's word big. And if you're going to pray for me, then pray that if this podcast takes off, that I don't get filled with pride, but I just see myself as an unworthy slave using that parable from Christ in Luke 17, and that I'm just doing what my master has taught me to do or has told me to do. So with all that being said, let's jump into the interview. Hey, everyone. I'm here again this week with David, and we have a great episode planned with taking some common objections to theonomy and explaining how those objections are not accurate, how they're either misunderstanding part of theonomy or making it say something it doesn't or something along that line. So is there anything you want to say, David, before we jump in? Uh, no, I, I I think you pretty well said. Uh, I think these are the um, the major arguments that I stumbled upon um, before coming into the theonomy movement. So hopefully this is profitable to someone. All right, cool. Yeah. So first, I'm going to take one, and then David's going to go out and do several that he's hears he's heard quite a bit. I'm taking the first one because I actually have what I think is a pretty common objection to theonomy that he hadn't heard about before. I think that might be more because it's common among your more like millennial Gen Z Christians, because those are the ages of Christians more into people like Bethel music and stuff like that. But it is the idea that theonomy or post-mill or both, both theonomy and post-mill, which are related, kind of get this thrown at them, that they are just part of the seven mountain mandate or seven mountain dominionism. 
it gets called both things. If you ever see someone just say 7MD, they're referring to 7 Mountain Dominionism. So if you're not familiar with that, it's basically this uh, charismatic dominion theology Pentecostal movement. This isn't like your Assemblies of God friend down the street believes this. This is more of a pretty extreme, like new apostolic reformation charismatic idea. So your conservative Pentecostal or Assemblies of God friend probably isn't into the seven mountain mandate. This is more in the like extreme kind of cultic side of things. Basically what they believe is that there are these seven mount- mountains of culture and things like that. And we will usher in the kingdom of God by bringing in these, by basically taking over these seven mountains of culture. So those seven mountains are one education, two religion, three family, four business, five government or military, six arts and entertainment, and seven media. And so you'll see these new apostolic reformation groups like Bethel from Bethel Reading in California and groups like that, IHOP KC, the International House of Prayer in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. They uh, are all people that are into this seven mountain mandate where they're basically trying to take over these seven mountains of culture and thinking that by taking over these seven mountains of culture, they will issue in the second coming of Christ uh, more or less. And you can kind of see this in certain things like I don't really watch any of the major news stations, but Todd Friel has said for like a year now that there just seems to be more and more Bethel people on Fox News. And I wouldn't be surprised because that would be them trying to take over the media mountain by getting more and more of these NAR, New Apostolic Reformation type people on the news media and things like that. And so people say this is basically just similar to post-mill and theonomy because post-mill and theonomy together are saying that we want to uh, more or less have a nation, preferably every nation on the planet, actually be obeying Psalm 2, where we're saying that these nations as a whole will be believing in the gospel, will be submitted to the lordship of Christ rather than being crushed by him, as Psalm 2 says, the nations that are not in obedience, that's what will happen to them. So, you know, basically post-mill theonomy says we will see more and more people in the world become Christian. And so till we see mostly Christianized nations, and then that will be, you know, ushering in theonomy, the nation will be, all of its laws will be according to God's law and based on the case laws we see in the Old Testament. And so they're saying because we're into that, that we're just wanting to do the exact same thing that the seven mountain mandate people do. Well, no, it's actually about the exact opposite. The more I look at seven mountain mandate type stuff, the more I think it actually resembles a twisted form of dispensationalism, not theonomy and uh, post mill and all that. Because the seven mountain mandate says we're going to take on the reins of these seven parts of culture, these seven mountains. And then we're basically going to top down force Christianity on the world. And this will usher in Christ's kingdom where theonomy and post mill, on the other hand, they are very bottom up. Theonomy and post mill says the great commission will be successful. And when the great commission is by and large successful in a nation, then it will essentially turn that into a Christian nation. And that nation will have laws in accordance with God's law. And we've seen before things like very similar to this happened in nations at one point just like a century or two ago 
Hawaii was more or less a Christian nation. I don't know if their laws resembled what we would consider theonomic laws, but they were more or less a Christian empire just a century or two ago. And the same thing with Korea before the war that resulted in the separate North and South Korea. Korea was basically a Christian nation. Uh, the first dictator of North Korea was actually the grandson of Presbyterian minister, of a Presbyterian minister. And another reason why theonomy and the seven mountain mandate are not the same is that I honestly just think the seven mountain mandate is a really bad charismatic ripoff of theonomy because if I remember correctly, the first time we ever saw something published about the seven mountain mandate, it was just a few years after Rush Juni's Institutes of Biblical Law came out. So it kind of just makes me think this charismatic guy read Rush Juni's stuff and then was like, hey, I like that. Let me work it into my theology, except he worked <laughs> it into his really bad theology instead of keeping it where Rush Juni had left it. Yeah. So anything you have to say about that, David? No, that that's very interesting. Thanks. I, I was unaware of that. That was very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I would say the main difference between good post-mill theonomy and then the Seven Mountain Mandate is just the bottom-up versus the top-down ways of going about things. Yeah, 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 I think so too, yeah. So what are some of the objections you were thinking about? Well, um, I, I tried to really give some thought to um, why I was resistant to the theonomic movement for, uh, for years and where I had issues um, with it. And um, before I even get into chasing down those arguments, I, I well remember, uh, you know, why I was even considering this, that, that I would have dispensed with the upcoming arguments right at the outset because of texts like this still ringing in my ears. And what am I referring to? Romans 6.14, for sin shall not uh, be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, folks who will reach for that text um, will also may stop there and not read the next text, which is verse 15, which says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Far from it. So um, to be fair, you know, that this is as Romans 6.14 as being anti-theonomic is easy to refute because of verse 15. Also, you will, go ahead. real quick, I'm going to stop you on that. It's easy to refute because the people who quote it that way only quote the second half of the verse. They don't quote the first half of the verse that says sin shall not be master over you because they're using the second half of the verse to justify sin still being master over them while naming the name of Christ. Uh, funny enough, this morning I actually was preaching on uh, Romans 6, 15 through 19 because I did 12 through 14 last week. And 15 mm -hmm. through 19 is basically Paul responding to that objection that he knows some people are going to bring up after reading verse 14. Yeah, no, that, that's a great uh, call out. Thanks. Um, and there, there are other texts like that you will find in, in the New Testament. And, and I would suggest to um, a listener who is struggling with that, that, you know, Paul refers to the law in a number of different ways. And when he is uh, objecting to it, he is um, uh, objecting to it from a justification uh, point of view. In other words, he, he doesn't believe that anyone can keep the law to be justified before God, but he is not um, against the uh, use of it uh, uh, for the Christian in their daily walk. So um, you have to be discriminating when you read through the New Testament like that. So that's one disclaimer. 
uh, um, uh, another disclaimer, and we should say this, and I, think, I, I finally got caught up, Jeremy, with all your podcasts, and I know you've said this somewhere. Let's say it one more time. We should say, state that uh, theonomy believes that of the moral law, which the Decalogue is the summary, the civil law, which is the case laws, um, that's also called the judicial law in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the ceremonial law, which is uh, laws like animal sacrifices, day of atonement, etc., that only the moral and civil remain because the ceremonial was but a shadow to point us to Christ. Now, how do we know that only the moral and civil remain? Are we putting a, a grid on, uh, on the Bible that we've devised? No. We believe that because the, um, God himself amends the law. He has the authority to amend it, and he has done away with the ceremonial law. You can see in the last um, uh, verse of uh, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, for instance, and, and, uh, and, it, and it came to an end in AD 70. Yeah, if we're still supposed to be obeying the, the ceremonial law, then that kind of completely undoes what Paul is trying to say in Galatians about the Judaizers trying to say you still have to be circumcised. Yeah. That the ceremonial law is now fulfilled in Christ because it was the entire ceremonial law was just types and shadows pointing to the gospel in Christ. Yeah, yeah, amen. That, that, that's a great point as well. Um, so as far as just general objections that, that kept me away from theonomy, um, uh, uh, one big nest of them is, uh, is answering the question, is the law only for Israel and, and or is it arbitrary? Another big objection that kept me away is, you know, what does Jesus and the apostles do with the law in the New Testament? So let's start with the first question. Um, is the law only for Israel uh, and or is it just arbitrary? Um, first, um, it, it's not only given to Israel. Um, the law doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Um, it's a codification of what everyone already knows and is written on their heart. Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these though not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the law just didn't pop down out of nowhere. It is, again, a codification on what is already written on the heart of man. Secondly, uh, God expected the surrounding nations to see the value of the law. Um, and we can find this in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8. Uh, Moses says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you are to do these things in the land where you are entering to take possession of it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So God expected the nations to see the supreme value of his law and uh, see the value of it. 
Yeah, that's really good. I come back to Romans 2, 14 and 15 all the time for various things, including Romans 5. So there are some parts of Romans 5 people think are really difficult to understand. And I think if you just take into account how the translators of New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible, when they capitalize the L and when they don't, which is gives you an indication of when they think Paul is referring to the law in general and to the law of the Old Testament in particular, then it gives you a pretty good idea. I think I, I think the LSB and NASB translators are doing that, referring back to Romans 2, 14 and 15, because they think, and I would agree with them in that, that Paul in some points in Romans 5 is talking about the law. Other times he's talking about the work of the law written in the heart. And those are two different things. Some people will take Romans 2, 14 and 15, and they'll say that it's a reference to Jeremiah uh, and it's talking about believers and it's saying the law written on believers hearts, but that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the work of the law written in their hearts. And he's talking about unbelievers, which is where he's talking about our consciences, which everyone has, which can be seared as Paul says in first Timothy four. But yeah, I think that's more of your evidential or classical guys that will try to say Romans 2, 14 and 15 is talking about the uh, law written in the hearts of believers, not the work of the law written in everyone's heart, which is what precept guys would say, and which is also what Calvin said about Romans 2, 14 and 15. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Those are very good points as well. Uh, another uh, text we could cite, I won't read this one, um, but uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, that the, the entire chapter of Leviticus 18 is laws on immoral relations of all kinds, one uh, or another. And um, the Lord says in, in 24 to the end that, um, that the nation should be careful to observe his laws and uh, that he, uh, the Lord, has driven out other nations. He, he uses the expression vomiting them out of the land because they didn't keep his law and he wants the nation to be careful or the, uh, the land will vomit them out uh, as well. And just, you know, shows that, uh, you know, I've heard the argument put forth that, you know, God just expects uh, you know, the others to keep um, the, the Decalogue and not necessarily um, the, the civil law. And no, that, that, that's not the case um, either. Another thing we might wanna think about as well is um, the instances in the Old Testament where God finds moral failure in the surrounding nations and sends a prophet to them. I mean, we just kind of suggested that in Leviticus 18. But, uh, you know, don't get so caught up in, uh, the, uh, in the, uh, the minor prophet Jonah and the story of the whale and forget to see the forest for the trees. He was sent to Nineveh, uh, which is the capital of Assyria. And to preach a, a message of, of repentance, which, the, which the, the, the king and the nation did follow, and God relented of the judgment that was coming. And it, when your eyes are open to this fact, um, you will begin to see this all over the Old Testament. Um, just uh, one span of chapters, Ezekiel chapter 25 to 32, is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy to the surrounding nations. Uh, about the, the reason that, that God is going to bring judgment uh, upon them. And it's interesting when you read that uh, in many cases, it is uh, um, uh, judgments for what we would call uh, first uh, table uh, offenses. So it, it's not just in Ezekiel, it's in all the major minor prophets, you'll, you'll see it. it, it's everywhere. So was the law only meant for Israel? And no, there's an emphatic no there. 
Second of all, uh, is the law arbitrary? So it's not just for Israel, but was it arbitrary in that God just put this together and it was just for them at a certain point in time and it was just arbitrary in, in nature? I think many have heard um, the philosophical um, dilemma, uh, which says, does God command that which is right, moral, good, true, or is right, moral, good, true defined by what God commands. Now, to choose the first horn of that dilemma means accepting that there is a concept of right that exists independent of God. In other words, it's over God himself. If you choose the second horn of that dilemma, it means that what God commands is purely arbitrary from the level of our human understanding. So which uh, one of those choices is right? And the answer is neither is right. It is a false dilemma. The law, uh, God's law, uh, reflects his very character. Um, let's look at the, at the Decalogue. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This testifies to the unity of God. There is only one God. The second law, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, uh, etc. This testifies that God is a spirit and has not a body like men and that he will not share his glory with another. The third law, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, etc. This testifies to the holiness of God. The fourth law, remember the Sabbath day, etc. This testifies to the inner life of the Trinity as they rest in each other and establishes the Sabbath as a creation ordinance for us to follow. The fifth law, honor your father and mother. This testifies to God's supreme authority and sovereignty over all that he has made. The sixth law, you shall not murder. This is rooted in God's love and God's compassion. The seventh law, you shall not commit adultery. This testifies to the fidelity of the Trinity to each other and God's faithfulness to the marriage bond to his covenant people. You shall not steal. This testifies that God is the creator and owner of all things and gives things to men as stewards. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This testifies to the absolute truthfulness of God. And last, you shall not cover your neighbor's uh, house, etc. This testifies that God is of absolute perfection and that we must be content with what he has sovereignly bestowed upon us. So. The Decalogue is not arbitrary. It is, it flows from the very character of God himself. I'm right now in the process of reading Richard Gamble's um, Whole Council of God's, a three-volume series. And in volume two, um, I uh, marked that uh, he said, because, because God's law is connected to his very being, it cannot be abrogated. Page 636. Hmm. You know, I think talking about the arbitrariness or the objectivity so i guess in this sense i'm kind of using arbitrariness similarly to the term subjectivity because i'm comparing it with objectivity i think that really goes to show how much theonomy is just in line with the presuppositional worldview because presup is more than just the apologetic the presup apologetic is just an outflow of the presup worldview and according to the presup worldview then 
what is objective, you know, the term objective doesn't mean neutral or unbiased or anything like that. Objective means what is in line with God and his nature and whatever method, i.e. scripture, he has taken to reveal his nature and about himself and truth. And so according to classical or evidential, where there is some outside standard by which man has a certain measure of autonomy, which is why Van Til in his book, Christian Theory of Knowledge, calls the presuppositional apologetic, the reformed approach, and the evidential and classical, the Romanist, as in Roman Catholicism or the Arminian approaches, because they allow a certain measure of uh, autonomy to man. They have to by nature of the apologetic. And if there is a certain measure of autonomy that man has, then yes, I guess you could call God's law arbitrary or subjective. But if the only things that are objective in this world is, if the only thing objective in this world is God, and then secondarily, any way in which God perfectly theonustos reveals himself, which is scripture alone, then scripture by definition is objective. And therefore the law of God is objective because the law of God is just an outflow of God's nature and the way God has ordered his creation. Yeah. Amen. I think you're making my points better than I am. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. So I, you know, as, as we just said that the Decalogue flows from the character of God. So it is timeless. The Decalogue is also um, should be seen as a summary statement. Uh, and as such, the civil law, the old Testament case laws provide the depth of their meaning. A wonderful, wonderful series for all, all the listeners of this podcast to, to go through is um, uh, Ken Gentry's um, exposition of De- Deuteronomy. I did not understand until I went through that, that the book of Deuteronomy is a gigantic exegesis of the Decalogue. And Ken traces through how Moses is going through the Decalogue uh, one commandment at a time and putting all the case law uh, under underneath it. And so if the book of Deuteronomy wasn't glorious enough, when you see it through the lens of the of a particular law, uh, it's even more uh, wondrous uh, to see it that way. Um, it is a great series. You can get it as a digital download on Ken's site for twenty dollars. It's, it's 53 sermons. It's very, very, very good. Highly recommended. Hmm. Good to know. Yeah. And while we're in this neck of the woods, we're still answering the question, is the law only for Israel and or is it arbitrary? And I've heard you cite this text, Jeremy, in in, uh, previous episodes. Um, God um, prophesied that there would be greater days for the law. In Hebrews 8, citing Jeremiah 31, um, Hebrews 8, 10, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. And I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, for for those who don't think that the law belongs in the New Testament age, why does God make a greater promise to write it on their hearts in the New Testament age? Hmm. So, um, so the law isn't just for Israel. It isn't just for. It isn't just arbitrary. It flows out of the character of God Himself. Which leads us to uh, the next um, uh, argument is, uh, what does Jesus and the apostles do with the law in the New Testament? And, and this, this really has is, is got to be the acid test, because it, what I've just said, uh, if, you know, if you weren't moved by all that, you could say, well, you're just throwing a grid 
over um, and a framework over the entire entire Bible, you know, to make it look the way that you want it to. This is the real acid test. What do you see in the New Testament when uh, with the Lord and the apostles actually in the, uh, the midst of their ministry? What do they do with the law? You, you can't um, you have to start with um, Jesus's uh, text in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 and following. He says, do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in verse 17, some people can get hung up on the fact that, that Jesus says, do not presume that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but here's the part that uh, sometimes trips folks up. It says, but to fulfill. It's almost like Jesus is really kind of making two points here in this one text. And uh, Dr. Bonson makes a really you know, profound but simple statement here. He says, whatever you think but to fulfill means, it can't mean to abolish. Otherwise, the text says, I did not come to abolish, but to abolish. So it has mm -hmm. to mean something else besides abolish, or this just doesn't make any sense at all. And we've already talked about Paul the Apostle, and uh, so we read some text early on. Um, right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In my 105 blog series, blog series posts, I was looking just a little bit ago, and I've got 42 of the 105 that are just going through the New Testament and finding overt statements by um, the apostles as to the use of the law. It is just everywhere once you start looking for it. So, Again, a really acid test of all this is what does Jesus and the apostles do with the law? And the answer is they assume it's ongoing function in the New Testament, and they use it uh, thusly. And I think and here's the final thing uh, to think about as well. And if someone is listening and they'll say, all right, you're starting to make some sense here. Buzzant, but isn't all of this a distraction from the primary task of the gospel ministry and preaching the gospel isn't this just a distraction from it and i think the response here has to be is the law is god's on-ramp to salvation this is a core gospel issue galatians 324 therefore the law has become our well tutor or guarding guardian depending on which version you're reading therefore the law has become our uh, guardian to lead us to christ so that we may be justified by faith so it is very much a core gospel issue here that the, the churches need to get back to the teaching and preaching of God's law so that we can see how great of sinners we are and how much we've offended a holy God. That's really good. So, so I, that's really, I think, kind of the core issues that made me stumble over theonomy. And I, I hope um, we've answered some issues for someone listening uh, that they'll find this profitable, but that was really kind of the, the main issues for me. Yeah, I think another thing with 
shouldn't we just be evangelizing, not focusing on this? Is that, uh, well, evangelizing more or less fulfilling the Great Commission within a nation should lead to theonomy kind of taking root in that nation. And if it does, that will lead to even greater possibilities for evangelism in that nation, because which is easier to evangelize in, a thoroughly Christian nation or a nation like China or North Korea or most of the Middle East? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the Great Commission has been boiled down to most people to you know, go into all the churches and, and save all those that, that attend that, that aren't Christians yet. <laughs> and it's so much broader than that. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. Yeah, that's really good. And another thing with when people make comments like that with, Shouldn't we just be evangelizing, not talking about this? The feeling I get when, because I've heard people say stuff like that to me about Calvinism when I was in college, the feeling I get is just that uh, people say that because they don't like talking about theology that much. So their excuse is just, well, why talk about theology when you could use that time to evangelize? Well, <laughs> if, does that person watch TV? Does that person you know, read books that aren't about how, aren't you trying to give them evangelism tips? Does that person ever go on YouTube watching videos other than Ray Comfort or Jeff Durbin or Tony Miano? Because the answer to any of those questions is yes. Then what they're actually saying is, I'll only spend so many hours a week doing spiritual things. And so I can't spend those hours doing things like talking about theology because I need to evangelize in them. That is, if they're not, uh, if they're actually evangelizing at all and not just using it 100% as a cop out. Yeah. But most of the time when people say that, I just get the feeling that it's an excuse because they don't want to talk about theology. And so therefore they're just going to say, why well, talk about theology when you could use that time to evangelize? Yeah, you know, exactly. And I mean, Jesus's first recorded sermon uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. And he spends the entire sermon sharpening and expounding on the true nature of the law. Yeah. Uh, any closing thoughts you want to say before we jump off? No, no, not at all. Again, I, I hope this is profitable um, for uh, those that listen. And I'm, again, so happy that you're doing this podcast, Jeremy. It's, it's, you've already had so many great episodes, and I'm sure um, even greater ones are, are to come. Well, thank you so much. It's glad to hear someone who's been in this a lot longer than I have say stuff like that about it. You know, you're welcome. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, as we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Sweet.